Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. The profession is overcrowded and the struggle is pretty tough. And admitting the fact she's burning to act, that isn't quite enough. She has nice hands to give the wretched girl her due, but don't you think her bust is too developed for her age? I repeat, Mrs. Worthington. Hello, all theatre lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theatre's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion, and it is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our Great White Way, some making a giant splash and some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplick. The least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is a friend of the pod, alum of the pod. I keep inviting him, and for some reason he keeps saying yes, despite the fact that he hasn't yet to have a good time on here. Please <laughs> welcome our dear friend, Adam Ellsbury. Hello! Hi, Adam! Hello. We're in the same room. I know, this is the first time we've recorded, like, together together. We've been staring at each other on monitors and talking for five hours at a time. This is, this is something new. Yeah, now you can see if I'm, like, touching my nipple when talking to you. He is, by the way. In case yes. You're, yeah. Both nipples! <laughs> he, he literally now is. <laughs> Adam, yes. what British work are we talking about today? We're talking about Noises Off by Michael Frayn. Michael Frayn, Tony Award winning playwright and Olivier Award winning playwright, Michael Frayn. Though not for this play, sadly. Um, wait, what did he win? For? Oh, wait. He what? won for Copenhagen? Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Right. I was going to say Copenhagen. Hagen. I'm an I'm I'm uh, uncultured fuck. Uta Hagen, Uta Hagen. Uta Hagen, Uta Hagen. Hagen does, Hagen does. Whatever. Um, <laughs> yes, Noises Off. Uh... I would argue the funniest play of the 20th century. Uh, yeah. Because also it's the only comedy to age well. Most comedies have a hard time aging. So I will just say that before, yeah. we, get in, before we get into it. I'll agree with that with, with, with one minor point, but yes. Sure. We'll get into it for sure. Um, first of all, Adam, I did give you a choice this time around, did I not? You did. I was shocked. I felt I was so, shocked. I felt so bad for <laughs> forcing your hand with Do I Hear a Waltz? Uh-huh. You can hear Adam's contempt in that episode every time <laughs> we get back on topic. Because we can tend to go off topic a lot on this podcast, but me and Adam generally it took us an hour from him getting to my apartment to us starting recording. Um oh but God. you can hear Adam's contempt the entire time. I had a decent enough time on that episode and it was it was <laughs> It gave me a chance to revisit that show a little bit and remind myself that I just don't care about it. Yes. Well, th- I think the big takeaway from that show was, while it is not a very good show, mm-hmm. Sondheim is equally as to blame for it as everyone else. Yes. Uh, whereas he kind of blamed the fact that, like, and he bl- he does give himself blame, but he also was like, oh, you know, it's, it's not a musical that needed to happen. Right. I'm like, no, this could have been a really good musical. You just, you guys just shat the bed. Right. Um, but that's fine. You know, you own your mistakes. And speaking of theatrical mistakes, these are on purpose. Yes. True, 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 true. Um, Adam, what is your experience with Noises Off? How did you come to it? Noises Off. So my, uh, my introduction to Noises Off was through the movie. I was probably 
like 12 and I was, we were so over. So the movie came out in 1974? You're a rude bitch. Um, <laughs> no, I had to have been older than 12 because it came out in 92. Um, yeah. But I I was probably like 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Um, I was over at my parents' friend's house and their kids were out of town. And so I was by myself. My parents were hanging out with their friends and we'd gone to the video store. And my mom's friend was like, oh, we watched this movie and we think you'd think it was really funny because it's about theater. Because mm. that was all I cared about at that age. And Still too. Yeah, there's. I have plenty of other interests. Well, now now there's men, but they're. Well, but... I heard about them men too, but we didn't talk about that. <laughs> them men folk. <laughs> um, but they, but she she recommended it, and they were you know off probably barbecuing, and I was you know being a contemptuous teenager and sitting and watching this movie, and I laughed through the entire thing and mm-hmm. was totally just enamored by it, and I was shocked to discover that it was a real live show. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go into watching the movie knowing that it was based on a play, and uh, then subsequently saw it live on Broadway when they revived it in two thousand one, um, and then the most recent twenty sixteen roundabout revival. And I've probably read the script a billion times because I think it's fascinating. Mm. I I remember being aware of the play's existence, not knowing what it was about when that revival in two thousand one came out because I was because you were five. Yes, I was five, but I was, I mean, I was going to school in New York and like, I remember seeing the poster everywhere and whatnot and, you know, seeing articles about it in Playbills when I would go see other shows, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really know what it was about. Um, I can't remember when I finally saw it because I saw the Roundabout Revival, but that was before, that was was after I had seen an actual live production of it. I can't remember. It might've been... God forbid, it might have been like an amateur production, but I it clearly did a number on me because I remember thinking the play was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and then I saw the movie, and then I saw the Roundabout Revival, which was lovely, and yeah, I I just have really uh, nice things to say about this piece. Yeah, it's a yeah. good time. Yeah. Well, so yes, when I gave you a choice, I gave you a choice of this and some musicals. Yes. Because I'm not doing a ton of plays this series because it's really hard to find a way to get guests to, like, uh, get the content for plays. If that makes sense? Sure, because conversations with plays usually have to run a lot deeper. And also because, like, best case scenario, you know, your guest has the script that they can read. But it's harder to, like, find a way for them to watch it. There was footage for this one. I gave you options, this and a couple of musicals. Mm -hmm. You picked this. I was thrilled. I was like, oh, great, we're going to have a grand old time. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you, you gave me a list and, and honestly, like, I think everything on that list except for Cats, I was enthusiastic about. Sure. So let's get into it. Let's do a little background info and then we'll get into the thing itself and then sort of have at. Great. Sound like a, sound like a plan. Let's do. Love it. Uh, so Noises Off is by Michael Frayn. Michael Frayn is a British playwright, as we've mentioned, known for Copenhagen. He also wrote a play called Democracy. Uh, I think he also wrote Benefactors. Yes, I think he did, because Benefactors won the Olivier of the Year after Noises Off. Don't quote me on that. That's off the top of my head. Uh, he got his start as a critic and as a journalist for The Observer and The Guardian and uh, started to get known as sort of a satirist. Satirist? Satirist. Satirist. Yes, I think satirist is correct. Satirist. And sort of with the cachet of that, was able to like self-publish his plays which then was uh, gave him more traction to like actually get produced by people. 
Noises Off came about because uh, he had written a play called The Two of Us starring Lynn Redgrave and uh, he was backstage one night for a performance of it around 1970 and the two of us is essentially a bedroom farce, which were very popular in England, specifically in the late sixties, early seventies, because Eng- uh, the West End had a thing called um, the Theaters Act that came through in nineteen sixty-eight. You know about this? No. So please tell me. So there used to be censorship on the London stage for like a solid two hundred years. Uh, like it had everything that came on the London stage had to get government approval. Uh, in fact, I believe Death of a Salesman was the first American play to be performed on the West End stage because it used to be illegal uh, or prohibited, let's say, for American playwrights to be performed in the West End. And then when America was like kind of rising with the musical with Rodgers and Hammerstein and Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams coming out, audiences were like, we want to see these plays. Hmm. And so that got lifted. Um, and then... The Theaters Act in 1968 basically eliminated all government interference of what could be produced. So there was no censorship anymore. And then came an onslaught for the next, like, ten years of just, like, the most, like, sexually infused plays you can imagine. (laughs) Both, like, both comedies and dramas. There's a very famous play called, I think, um, The Romans in Britain. There was, like, apparently a gay rape on stage. And it, 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 well, who doesn't love to see it? But... It was one of those things where everybody was like, is this actually good? Or is the player just like making up for lost time of our censorship? Just taking advantage of the situation? Yes, I, sure. can, I can do this now. Right. Uh, but sex, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I, kn- I learned about the Theaters Act when I went to London last time, like three years ago, because they did a, an exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum about the history of the London stage. Mm. And they had a whole section about the Theaters Act and like the plays that came about because of it. Um, with the end of censorship but on the brighter note we got a lot of what were called bedroom farces which are just slapstick shows a lot of door slamming usually a woman comes out in her underwear at some point a man's pants are at the bottom of his you know legs and the general idea is like everyone wants to fuck and no one gets the chance to fuck one of the most famous plays in this respect is a play called um no sex please we're british which like never came to america i don't think or if it did it bombed and ran there for like nine years I, th- I want to say I've read that play or I at least had possession of that script at some point. I know that I'm I, like, it's a, it's a play that I'm aware of, but I don't, <laughs> well, I've never yeah. read it. It's, it's probably basically noises off. Yeah. It's also like, it's or a nothing t- on, I should yeah, say. Nothing on. It's also, it's a title you can't forget. It's a, <laughs> no matter what the quality of the play is, it's, I don't even want to say it's a good title. It's just like a, it's memorable. It's a memorable title. Uh-huh. Uh, but like Boeing, Boeing, which uh, had a really good revival about 12 years ago. It was uh, great. That is a similar kind of farce. Although that, uh, because that originated in France and uh, came out in the mid, and then had a movie version in the mid sixties, I think when London did it, it was sort of like, well, this is popular. So like put it on. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, that was a very big uh, trend on the London stage in the 1970s. And this is all to say, Frayne was backstage of his farce, the two of us and watching like all the shenanigans that people were going through to put the show on. And he was like, Oh, this would make a really interesting play. Cut to seven years later. <laughs> he does a one-act version of it. It's called Exits. Um, and it had Dennis Quilly and Patricia Ratledge in it. Patricia would go on to do the full-blown version of this thing. Producer uh, Michael Cadron, I want to say C-O-D-R-O-N, uh, requested that Frayne expand the thing, uh, expand the one-act, make it a much fuller play, which he does. Uh, it gets produced in 1982 at the Lyric Theater and immediately transferred to the Savoy Theater on the West End, where it played for five years. 
Uh, it won the Olivier Award for Comedy of the Year, because that was back in the day when the Olivier's split uh, Best New Play and Best Comedy. Because they're like, oh, you made us laugh? You're ser- you're not a serious play. But you, we'll give you a separate category But anyway. we chuckled, so... Yes, it's the Golden Globes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, because, uh, what's her face? Sia's movie Music is a uh, comedy. Well, it's a musical comedy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> music and or comedy. <laughs> the, uh, the show transferred about a year later, or slightly less than a year. It had um, some slight edits. Michael Frayn writes in his intro to the published script that, like, all throughout the beginning of the West End run, he was making changes, like, every night to the point that finally the actors, like, kind of united against and They're like, we're not doing any more changes. Um, it's and, already a hard enough show to yeah. remember as it is. Like, I can't imagine having to implement changes on it nightly and, and remember what the hell you're doing. When exactly. That's, like, the, the whole conceit of the play to begin with. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into all that in yeah. a bit. But uh, that production did come to America. It had a tryout in Washington, D.C. first, uh, directed by Michael Blakemore, who directed it on the West End. Basically, like, legitimately the same physical production uh, with some minor changes from Frayne. Uh, it goes from the from D.C. to Broadway, where it opens at the Brooks Atkinson Theater December 11th, 1983, with Dorothy Loudon, Deborah Rush, Victor Garber, uh, I think Brian Murray. Yes. Uh, yes. And we will get into what happened when that opened in a bit. So, Adam. Yes? What is Noises Off about? <laughs> so, Noises Off. It's a play within a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the play being performed is called Nothing On, which, as we've established, is a sex farce. It takes place in uh, a country house owned by Philip and Flavia Brent. <laughs> Speaking which, of names, you can't forget. I can't forget Phil, Philip and Flavia Brent. And Philip. they never say her name in the play. They don't. You hear They call her Belinda, but they never, which is the actress who's portraying yes. Flavia, but yes. you never hear her name. There are two sets of characters. There are the actual actors playing the parts and then the parts themselves. Right. Um, so the, the, the show Noises Off itself is performed in three acts. Um, you only see act one of Nothing On performed as the audience of Noises Off. I'm going to try to keep this clear as possible. Um, so the first act of, no- of Noises Off is uh, you watching the final dress rehearsal of Nothing On during which nothing is going right and they're n- like nearing I think they're nearing midnight or the, the middle of past, the night. Yeah, they go past midnight. It's the middle of the night and they're still trying to just get through the first act of this of this play. That is has its first performance literally the that, following day. Yeah. Um, uh, act Act two, the this company is on the road with this production. So act two is a couple months into the run of the show um, on the road. And the entire two-level uh, house set flips around for the audience's perspective to then watch all of the goings-on backstage. There are all sorts of, basically the... Uh, <coughs> The, uh, the the love affairs happening within the play within a play are now mirroring themselves within the cast of the play. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of... It's a farce within a farce of a play within yeah. a play. Basically, um, as is wont to happen with artists, <laughs> yes. uh, people start uh, hooking up with each other right. and start getting bored with the play itself. And not only does the play start to get sloppy, but the actors let their egos and uh, horniness get the better of them. Right. So the second act ultimately culminates in uh, watching this cast get through the this first act while basically attacking each other off stage throughout the, the, uh, and, and trying to save one another from attacking, attacking each other backstage. The third act is, uh, another couple months later on the road, but we're back for in the front of the house watching the play and it's a shit show. Yes. It's like literally the last week of the run 
Um, and they've, yes, they've culminated into complete chaos. And it's brilliant. The show basically, so as Adam said, it, you only see the first act of the play, nothing on, of the sex farce, nothing on. Right. And the way that the play is structured is we have the dress rehearsal. So you, so you see how it's supposed to go. Right. You become familiar with the act of the first act of nothing on yes. so that you know what the general, how, how it's supposed to work. Yes. Quote unquote. Yeah, exactly. Even with like the stops and starts and there is a lot of stopping and you, and we also establish who everyone in the company is, their mm-hmm. relationships with each other, uh, their histories. Right. And then act two is all, once that's all set up, we then hear the play of nothing on from the back of the house while we are, quote-unquote backstage and see how those relationships are affecting each other and then the third act is us seeing the first act of nothing on go completely off the rails right and it doesn't even start on the rails no it it begins just like already the the it's decaying right our yeah one of our actresses enters limping before the show has like before her first line like you you just know it's 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 downhill from there i think like yeah so Okay, so let's also now uh, explain the cast of characters. Sure. So, uh, the leading lady of Nothing On is Dottie Otley. Right. <laughs> Dottie Otley, uh, a famous but getting older TV star. I always think of her as um, as uh, uh, Molly Sugden, like uh, Mrs. Slocum from uh, Are You Being Served? Who always had the color, colored hair. She talks about a pussy. If I don't get home... Have you never seen Are You Being Served? No, what is that? Oh my god. Listeners, Matt, there's... It's a, uh, it's a BBC uh, sitcom from the 70s and I think early 80s. Um, it's about the women's floor of a department store and all of its goings on. But Mrs. Slocum is this middle-aged woman and very much in sort of any sort of British sitcom style. Everybody kind of has their catchphrase that you hear yes. once within an episode. And Mrs. Slocum is always always talks about her pussy and it's always double entendre to be... to be. She's referring to her cat, but uh-huh. it never sounds like she's sure. talking about her cat. Um, there's If you go onto YouTube even, there's a compilation of all of Mrs. Slocum's references to her pussy. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, well, I hope this meeting doesn't last too long if i'm not home by seven o'clock my pussy goes mad and it's that kind of thing <laughs> but i always sort of inc- think of dotty otley aka yes um the the character she's playing uh mrs clackett as this molly sugden mrs uh, uh slocum sort of character that makes sense not to be disparaging about like british humor because i've said before i'm an anglophile i love yep. so much uh english pop culture when it comes to sitcoms and like, I mean, and also like earlier, you know, seventies, eighties stage comedies, like they are very big on repetition Mm -hmm. and on catchphrases. So like, um, if you ever watch the Catherine Tate show, which is a sketch show, she has certain characters who have catchphrases. And when the catchphrase is said after a certain point, like it's not even a punchline anymore. It's just the fact that they say the catchphrase, everyone starts to laugh. Right. Every every scene is basically a build up to that catchphrase yes, being said. Exactly. She has yeah. one character, um, I forget his name, but he's bald and like clearly gay. And everyone always assumes oh, yeah. and always like doesn't ever nobody ever asks him. They just like immediately assume that he's out. And it's clear that he is, but he won't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. And his catchphrase is always he's like, What are you insinuating? Uh well, you're gay. How very dare you? Uh-huh. And so it's not even a very funny line, but it's become right. his catchphrase. So once it's said, the audience goes ballistic. Right. She's got her, one of uh, Catherine Tate's other characters is Lauren, who mm-hmm. is, I ain't bothered. I'm a bothered though. I'm a bothered. Are you disrespecting my family? Right. Um, or <laughs> the best version of that is with David Tennant. Are you disrespecting the house of Koopa? Right. 
um, that one I actually argue would, is great because it does take all those catchphrases and flips them on its head because she's in the middle of English class. Mm-hmm. And when she's told that she's um, beneath Shakespeare and she's not smart enough to get Shakespeare, mm. she then uses all of her catchphrases in a Shakespeare slang. <laughs> a mist above her it. Yeah. A mist above her it. <laughs> my liege, my liege, look at that, my face. Right. Look at that, my face. Anywho. Um, oh, but so to, to get yeah, back. Dottie. So Dottie. Um, Sorry, guys. Well, the, um, if, if you're lucky enough to see a production of Noises Off live, I will say something that's always a part of a production of Noises Off is within your program, if the theater does it correctly, mm-hmm. you get a separate program for the play Nothing On mm-hmm. itself. So you get the bio of the actors that you're actually seeing in Noises Off, but you also get the bios of the characters who are playing the characters in yes. Nothing On. Uh, one of my favorite things, speaking of catchphrases, is Dottie Otley, one of the some character that she played on a sitcom that is referenced in her bio. Mm-hmm. Her catchphrase is, I can oddly hold me lolly up. And Hysterical. that's hilarious. Yeah. But it's, but I, that's, that's, it's just one of those, it just goes to show yeah. that it's very stereotypical yes. for somebody to have a catchphrase that they're well known for. Exactly. And she thinks of herself as like a grand dame of the theater. And it's, and it's entirely possible that like at the beginning of her career, like she did start up in theater and like sure. did do really legitimate work and then just like got hooked on the money and the fame of TV mm-hmm. and ha- and has not done legitimate theater in probably 30 years. This is her first play in a while. And part of the reason why the play is even happening is because she has put money into it. Right. Um, and even, and I also remember the one thing I do remember from that fake playbill is that the writer of the play, nothing on mm-hmm. Robin Hausmonger. He was a woman's like hosiery, uh, salesman and uh-huh. then wrote his first play which promptly ran for nine years on the west end right um <laughs> and i don't even remember the title was but it was something similar to like no sex please uh, sex please were british it was mm-hmm. like who's like who's watching her like something like that totally. <laughs> which ran for nine years totally <laughs> uh, which is michael frayne's joke of being like hey guys remember in the 70s when we just let anything run for five years uh-huh. when we just let the absolute biggest pieces of shit run right. and then he uh produced noises off in the 80s when that was doubly true but with songs indeed remember when the musical time ran for a year and a half on the west end time time well we will not be covering that one as it did not transfer over here thank god but we will be covering um, one of the longest running british musicals that came here and did not bomb but like ran for maybe a tenth of it the run that it had on the west end which is that Oh, Blood Brothers. What? How did I visually show that to you? He, he sliced his palm and clasped his hands together. I'm, I'm... What else could I do for that, though? Oh, that was good. Thank you. I mean, other... The only thing I could say would be like, you know, Marilyn Monroe. Sure. Sure. Oh, guys, get ready for that episode. I am going to be... Not fuming, but I will just be so over it. I, I do love that song, though, I have to say. It's, it's a guilty pleasure. For anybody who complains that Andrew Lloyd Webber overuses the same motifs... Ooh. Get ready for Blood Brothers, Brace. where uh, Billy Russell had one idea and dug it into the ground. Brace yourselves, kids. All right, <laughs> back t- to this cast. He dug Marilyn Monroe up again, yeah. just so he could throw her into the ground and push her in there. Yeah. So yes, Dottie Adley, she's our, she's plays Mrs. Clackett and Nothing On, who is the housekeeper of this country estate. Right. Uh, Lloyd Dallas is our director. He is sort of, I guess, like, he's kind of, sort of supposed to be kind of like a Trevor Nunn. Like, he's very hot-tempered, like, very... 
um, up and coming director. He like does Shakespeare often. He's sort mm. of, it's clearly he's doing this for the money. Like this is going to be like an easy paycheck. Right. Um, over the course of the play, we find out he's had relations with one of the women in the cast, as well as the stage manager, assistant stage manager. Yes. yes. We have Gary the June playing right. Roger, right? Roger works for the real estate company that's representing the house. I think. Squire, Squire, Hackman, Dudley. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, are they, are there's, they are looking to sell the house or are they part? Uh... No, there's another, there, there's another group that's looking. He doesn't know. I think it's part, uh, Vicky's, the group that book Vicky works for is the one that's trying to sell it. And I don't think he's aware of the fact, his character is aware of the fact that they're trying to sell it. Yeah. Squire's... Okay. So, okay. The, so nothing on the play in which noises off is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. The basic idea is that, um, the, uh, Brent's Flavia and Philip have this country house and they are supposed to be in Spain right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, while they are in Spain, Mrs. Clackett, their housekeeper is like basically, you know, watching over the place, even though she's not really supposed to be there since they're not there. And, but they got color and it's the horse race. Mm-hmm. She's, she's there to watch the horse race on yes. television and eat some sardines. <laughs> eat some sardines. Mm-hmm. Um, oh God, wait. And, and wait, we'll get, no, we, we, I have to, I have to finish this statement. Okay. Okay. Roger, uh, he does work. No, he works for some company that represents the house because he knows about the house's existence. Yes. Um, yeah. He's one of the uh, the house agents. Yes. Vicky, uh, I think she doesn't work for the for the the government. I don't think. I think she works for the company, but she deals with taxes. Right. She talks about having tax returns that she has to okay. file. Um. So she works in Roger's company. She's like an assistant or whatnot, and he has brought her there to have sex with her. Right. And she is not very bright. Um, and what, and the first complication that ensues is they think the house is empty and then Mrs. Clackett is there and it, because it's a no sex, please we're British sort of thing. And you know, manner, it's a comedy of manners. He can't rightly tell Mrs. Clackett to get the fuck out and tells her that he's showing the house to a prospective buyer, um, which is, which she claims is Vicky. And then on top of that, there's, um, a Saudi potential buyer for the house, something like that. Yes. Yes. On top. On top of all this, mm-hmm. and so then they, she, Vicky goes in uh, into an upstairs room to uh, get into her underwear. Roger uh, is trying to cover his tracks. Meanwhile, uh, the Brents come back from Spain. They actually never make it to Spain because uh, the IRS has, is attacking them. Yes, the IRS has blocked them from leaving the country because uh. they have not paid any uh, income tax. Right. So they come back to the house. Philip has gotten a notice from uh, the government basically saying that they owe a whole bunch of money and that I think even that they have to now sell the house, which might be where Vicky comes in. I can't remember. It's all, it's all total nonsense. Uh, yeah. point, is, point is, a lot of slamming doors and Mrs. Clackett has promised both groups that she won't inform the other group of their existence. So right. Roger and Vicky uh, don't know that the Brents are back and have told... Mrs. Clackett, don't tell anyone we're here. The Brents have told Mrs. Clackett, don't tell anyone we're here. Like because if we're if the government doesn't know we're here, they can't come find us. We're in and we're out. So she doesn't tell Roger and Vicky that the Brents are back. So there's a lot of misunderstandings, right? And uh, well, and just to finish telling the plot of of nothing on sure. The, the then the, out of nowhere, there's a burglar that comes in, mm-hmm. um, and uh, 
very quickly after that, um, ever, ultimately it all culminates with everyone in the in the living room around the the couch. It's revealed for some reason that the burglar is also Vicky's father. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sheik comes in. There's been some mistaken identity between a couple of the of the people. I mean, that's yeah. really all you sort of know. Yeah, it's the the reveal of the burglar being Vicky's father is one of those classic things in farces, similar to like comedy of errors or. Right. Uh, or going even something that listeners would remember from uh, this series, Forum, where you find out that Erroneous's children are actually Philia and... Oh, sure. Um, Hero. Uh, no, not Hero. Because then Philia and Hero would be... Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, uh, Miles. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, that they are his children. Right. It's one of those, like, big far school reveals where, like, you find out that there's a connection that no one saw coming. Right. Um, makes no sense. Doesn't add anything to anything. And then it's never explained. And and, and and never followed through. And then you, and on top of all this, this is the first act of the play, nothing on. Right. This should be the whole play. Uh, right. Like that, because it all sort of culminates in this way where you're like, oh, clearly that's the end of the show. It's like, no, that's the end of act one of this fucker. Right. Um, so you just m- makes you wonder like, what the hell is act two going to be? But like, there's a whole lot of misunderstandings. Like Roger keeps locking Vicky in rooms. So Mrs. Clackett doesn't see her in her underwear. And then the Brents go- are going in and out of rooms and people are misplacing each other's clothes and their items. And then right. Vicky thinks that the house is haunted and runs out in her underwear. Right. Um, it's, it, it's one of those things where it's like, it's so weird because like it it absolutely makes absolutely no sense, but it's so dead on for this decade of farce that Frain is um poking fun at that right. to the point where I'm like, if he actually wrote nothing on for realsies in like 1974, it would have run for ten years. It probably years. would have been a hit. Yeah. yeah, I mean the well, and if if we can discuss props really quickly, yes, the sardines. Well, more than that. So the 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 director Lloyd at one point sits the cast down during the dress rehearsal as they're just trying to get through the evening, and he says. He says that the play is all about doors and sardines, mm-hmm. getting getting on, getting off, getting the sardines on, getting the sardines off. There are uh, there's a box and a bag that also uh, get misplaced and uh, and switched out mm-hmm. at one point as well. And there's a lot of issues with a phone, right? Uh, so like the play opens, and we'll get back to the cast list in a second. But the play literally opens with Dottie coming on as Mrs. Clackett, beginning her speech with the phone ringing, and she does her whole bit. And she then breaks character once she finishes the phone call. And she goes, and I leave the sardines. No, I take the sardines. And eventually, I forget which one it is, but then, like, Lloyd on the God mic is like, no, you you leave the sardines and you take the newspaper. Right. And she can't get it right. Um, because it is one of those things where it's like, every prop you leave on stage is going to be important for someone else to take. And then on top of this, you have actors like Frederick Fellows playing Philip Brent. Oh, sure. Getting, yes, getting back to the cast. Yes. Here we go. Who, Frederick is one of those actors who's like, but what's my motivation? Right. And in a play like Nothing On, you don't have motivation. You just get on and you get off. It's it's to to do it. Yes, you exactly. Just, you just do it. And Lloyd being the, you know, uh, pompous beta male thinking he's an alpha male that he is, basically, like, has no time for this. Uh, again, because they open the next day and they haven't finished teching it. Uh, and Frederick's like, well, what's my motive? Like, why would I bring the groceries to the office with me? And he's right. like, he's like, cause you can't have the groceries on stage anymore. He's like, but what's my motivation? Right. Um, so that's fucking things up. And then we have Belinda Blair, who's playing Flavia Brent, Phillips wife. And Belinda is actually pretty professional. The biggest problem with Belinda is that she's the cast gossip, but she hides it by pretending she's the ho- the cast den mother. She's probably the most good natured out of everybody in the show. Yeah. She's always 
trying to stay positive and trying to, uh, she definitely, there, there are a lot of moments where things will fall out of sync and she's usually the one to get people back up and running mm-hmm. or where they need to go, especially uh, in the first and second acts um, yes. where when people are like, what the fuck are we doing? Uh, one of the characters often forgets a line and mm-hmm. she'll be the one to call it out. Yep. Um, she's, Belinda is, again, I think she is the most professional of the bunch. She's yeah. the best at doing this. Uh, she's the best ad-libber, which comes in handy in Act 3. Is she? <laughs> I, I think she is. Well, I think we have people like Frederick and Gary who, like... That's true. They're they, fumblers. Yes. And, and, and they try to ad-lib, but they just, like, they're 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 better at ad libbing like when some when something's on stage that's not supposed to be on stage and they'll be like oh maid left this here like that's their go to and like throw right. it on stage Belinda when I say she's a good ad libber or she's not a good ad libber she's the best ad libber of the bunch um in the sense that like when things go so horribly off the rails she whether what she says makes sense or not is beside the point right she's able to connect it in a way where it's like and we're back she's the best at going with the flow for yes. sure um which is to say we then also have brooke ashton playing vicky who is the polar opposite of that right she as the the, the actress and character are none so bright yes if vicky is none so bright brooke is less so i think in uh in brooke's uh bio in the playbill um you it's it's basically revealed that prior to um and i think they allude to this actually in the script of the of the show as well uh between lloyd and and Brooke in, in some sort of a conversation. But it's alluded to that basically up until here, a lot of her work has been, I think she at one point probably was a, a prostitute of some kind. <laughs> and uh, in her bio, all of her work is uh, is like TV and film work where she's like the girl in room 203 mm-hmm. and the girl in that answers the phone in room 207. Like mm-hmm. it's always her basically playing a hooker. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she is... Uh, she knows her lines. She knows where she needs to go, but she, and, and, and come hell or high water, she will get to that spot. And she will say that line at the cost of whatever is going on around her. I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that Brooke was literally a prostitute before she started acting. Maybe not a prostitute, but have you watched, um, call my agent? No, it's on Netflix. It's a French show. I literally just watched the first episode last night. My, both of my parents are obsessed with it. And they basically like, peer pressured me into watching the first episode but the one of the agents is watching footage of a young actress because his main client left him anyway the footage is basically just like her in a hotel room getting undressed and he's like she's got real star potential Mm. and that for me is like how brooke got a career it's like brooke is very beautiful and very young and blonde and you know has a lovely body and that is what has gotten her work so far but the only way she can get consistent work is like if she doesn't talk so she's like you know playing the prostitute in this tv show in this movie and and, and, yeah very states of undress and that's also what she does in this play is very states of undress unfortunately though there are words and there is blocking and there's consistency needed right uh right and and she has learned all of these things and 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 when you when you when you're watching the show even if something goes wrong she doesn't go with that flow. She stays on her path and mm-hmm. continues to say her lines as written, even when people are saying completely different things to her. There is... So, okay. There is a moment in the play... Mm. In the play of... So, in the play of Nothing On, there is a moment when uh, Brooke goes into... I guess it's supposed to be the attic or something like that. Or maybe it's a closet. I can't remember. She gets right. shoved into the into the closet. She gets shoved into the closet and... Uh, Philip Brent locks the closet door. Right. Um, 
not knowing that she's in there. And then she starts tugging it at some point, and then Roger comes out and un- and looking for Vicky, unlocks. Did I say Brooke goes into the closet? Vicky, yes. yeah. Brooke, the actress playing Vicky. Brooke as Vicky, yes. Vicky is locked in the closet. Roger comes out looking for Vicky, unlocks the uh, door to the closet, finds her, and they have an interaction. And it's the, like, Vicky, why did you lock the door? And she goes, why did I lock the door? Why did you lock the door? And every actress who does it, rather to say the two actresses that have been um, recorded that can be found for public consumption, Katie Finner and and Megan Hilty, (laughs) do a very similar thing where they do, like, a head hip bop on it because there's a certain kind of rhythm to some of these lines. And especially when you remember that this is supposed to be very performative and that Brooke is not necessarily an actress uh, of quality. Mm-hmm. They do this sort of like head tilt to head tilt. Why did I lock the door? Why did you lock the door? And when you watch act two, when it's backstage, right. there gets a moment where Brooke, the actress Brooke gets fed up with Lloyd uh, for some reason, because how could you not? I think she finds out about him and Poppy. Yes. Yeah. She correct. finds it, Poppy, the assistant stage manager, who's also the understudy for all the women in the show. Right. And then also um, Tim. Tim Allgood, the company and stage manager, who is the understudy for all the men in the show. So these two people have to call the show while also being in the show, which sounds uh, ridiculous until you remember my off-Broadway debut in the play Daddy Issues. Both of our stage managers also understudied half the cast. Um, so they didn't understudy the entire cast, uh-huh. but half the cast. Yep. Uh, and neither one was allowed uh, to be on at the same time because otherwise we would have absolutely nobody in the booth. But then that also meant we'd have no one backstage with us. Anywho, luckily neither of them ever went on. Ah, uh, theater. Neither of them ever went on. Anywho. Um, yes, Brooke finds out about Poppy and Lloyd has a moment and walks off uh, to not do her uh, reappearance in the closet later. So when right. G- when Gary as Roger opens the closet door and Brooke and uh, Brooke isn't there, he starts having he tries to do the lines uh, as written while also improvising why Brooke isn't there because he goes, oh, there you are. Are you? I d- I'm not sure. It's quite Gary also is somebody who we should we should say. Uh, is not good at ad-libbing and also in in quote-unquote real life is somebody who never is able to finish a sentence nope he's also having um a relationship with Dottie. correct um and and you find out in act two that he's pissed off they've had a whole row because Dottie didn't come home that night and you find out that Dottie uh had a had an innocent night with frederick but or it no it was innocent because frederick wouldn't lie um but it's probably clear that Dottie was trying to make something happen but uh Gary won't talk to Frederick and in fact tries to hurt him a couple times anyway right uh so Brooke is not there for her entrance Gary is trying to improvise and it's not working and then they throw Poppy up the stairs so while she's on book but she's hiding behind the door saying all of Brooke's lines why did I lock the door why did you lock the door so that way Roger can do the interaction with a quote-unquote offstage Vicky Mm -hmm. and then continue on with the play and then three minutes later Brooke finally comes back to do her entrance again even though the play is now three minutes further than her entrance and she comes back out and does her lines exactly as they were written but it's just three pages late and then everybody starts to try to continue on with the play, but she continues just saying her lines. Right. It's very and, fun. And so it goes. And, and so it goes. Um, I think we covered everyone. Oh, no, the last one. Um, Selsden Mowbray, who plays right. the burglar. Sels- right. So Selsden, uh, the way his uh, his um, 
bad habits sort of inform everything. Uh, he seems to be uh, basically well, what we what we sort of learn is that he is a Shakespearean actor. He's older. Um, he's over time become a bit of an alcoholic mm-hmm. um, and has a tendency to fall asleep um, and miss his entrances. Yes. He is hard of hearing and um, the cast is very protective of him, um, but more than anything, not just because they care about him, but also because they just want to be able to get through a performance. Yes. Um, and, uh, and and basically... Uh, Throughout, as as the show progresses, n- n- noises off, not nothing on. Uh, the the cast will slowly start to discover uh, bottles of uh, whiskey that he's hidden backstage that they're constantly trying to keep away from him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, more than once, he will forget his line and call for it, and the entire cast will end up yeah. screaming it at him. And he doesn't. He only knows the line that cues his entrance to break the window pane to enter the house he right. doesn't really know what's happening in the play right so he can't like listen to it off stage and go like oh i'm coming up soon he just they need to shout his like entrance line that's also to say that there's a big uh misunderstanding in act two so like again act two it's a month into the run they're on the road and lloyd is sort of snuck backstage to have sex with brooke in her dressing room only to find out that the play's about to begin whether it's two minutes three minutes or one minute is up for debate <laughs> Yeah, there, there, there are many reasons why the play keeps having to halt its start yes. time. Yeah. Um, but so he brings with him a bottle of whiskey and flowers and tells the stage manager, Tim, not to tell Poppy that he's there, not to tell anyone he's there, because he is still having an affair with Poppy while also having an affair with Brooke and neither knows about the other one. And he hides the whiskey bottle and the flower flowers. No, sorry. He hides the whiskey bottle, tells Tim to go buy flowers. I apologize. Tells Tim to go buy flowers. And while he looks for Brooke, uh, the company finds the whiskey bottle, thinks that it's Selzden's. Right. So they start hiding the whiskey bottle in other places. So then Lloyd comes out. He's like, what the fuck is my whiskey bottle? Mm-hmm. And then uh, he goes off to look for his whiskey bottle. Then he goes out to the back of the house. Tim comes back with the flowers that he bought. Poppy thinks that they're for her. And Tim is too uh, weak-willed and too nice to correct her. And so just gives them to her. And then it's a whole to-do um there's a there, so there's a running joke and also an act two that we, I was mentioning earlier. Uh, for various reasons, the company is not sure when they're about to begin if they're if they're even truly ready. Dottie's not in costume. Gary won't speak to anyone. Frederick uh, has a fear of confrontation. All things uh, violence gives him a nosebleed and vertigo, which is hysterical because he's in a slapstick farce where there is so much physicality in it. Right and. Poppy is running around trying to get things done, trying to make sure that Dottie goes on, because if Dottie doesn't go on, then Poppy has to go on. Tim's trying to make sure that Selzden uh, isn't drunk somewhere, because if Selzden's drunk, that that means Tim has to go on for the burglar. And while this is all happening, Poppy and Tim are not ever crossing paths, so they each go to the mic to inform the house that the play will be beginning will be will be beginning in three minutes, and then Poppy goes off. Then Tim comes on and says the play will beginning will be beginning in three minutes, and someone will say, "Oh, Poppy already said three minutes," and Tim says, "Oh, great, um, the play will be beginning in two minutes," and then he goes off, and then Poppy comes on, and Poppy says three minutes, two minutes, and t- and then five minutes later, Lloyd runs backstage. He goes, "What the." F- fuck is going on this is a sunday matinee we hear three minutes everyone runs to the bathroom we hear two minutes we're all running back to the seats which is it 
Right. It's great. Right. It, it gets to the point where, where he comes back a second time and says, you know, there, there's senior citizens out there. They think someone's died. <laughs> um, but, um, and, and, and we should, we should also state in, in the second act, once the performance actually begins, everything that's going on backstage is done in complete pantomime silence yep. because they're not allowed to make noise mm-hmm. while the show is going on for obvious reasons. So everything is choreographed within an inch of its life yep. within the staging of, of, of this show to, I, I guess, if, you're, if you've ever read the script or haven't read the script, the, I believe the second act is written in three columns. Yeah, so the yeah, so the first act is written in um, brackets. So like anything that right. has the play nothing on is in a giant box. And then once they get into the real world, the box you, we come out of the box and all the dialogue gets out of the boxes. The real world. And then yes, um, I believe no, it's two brackets. Uh, oh, it's two. Second act is two brackets. Uh, the bracket on the right is in box in a box. The nothing on play. Right. And everything on the left is stage direction of what's happening while nothing on is going. Right. Um and. It also serves another purpose, in addition to the fact that they can't make noise backstage, because that's not what you do when you're a professional actor. It adds another level of hilarity to the audience to hear the play that's going on that we had just heard in the previous act. Right. And so when things go wrong backstage for onstage, such as Brooke coming back for her entrance three pages too late, it's doubly hilarious right because you know what's supposed to happen yes yes oh and on top of this uh brooke is like kind of legally blind and she keeps losing her contact lenses oh that's right of yep. course she keep her she has contact lenses that are probably just too big for her eyeballs because they keep falling out right it, it doesn't take much for her to all of a sudden start uh looking around and feeling for whatever's in front of her Mm -hmm. um there is a great moment in the first act when this this is revealed to us as an audience where uh she she loses her contact and uh it's not even i don't even think she says it my contact is gone she says uh she's she She lost the the left one i think so she said which one is it she she exclaims and someone says oh no which one is it and someone says left one left one and they all are on their hands and knees yeah. looking for this contact. Indi- indicating that this happens a lot. Right. Um, the, the resolution of that particular lost contact is her saying, anyway, I've found it. And they say, well, where was it? And she's in my eye. No, apparently it had shifted. Gone round the side. Gone round the side. <laughs> yep. Crazy. It had gone round the side. Yep. There's a, it's a great bit of physical comedy because, and it's, I think part of what makes it so great is it's also really endearing because the whole company bands together to look for it right. and they all because everybody goes to their knees and everybody like goes moves in a very peculiar way of like you know you don't want to step on it so right. everyone's going very lightly and it's a very it's like and they've clearly worked out a system because they've right. happened so many times and then in act two when it happens again they have to do the exact same thing in the dark in silence it's really really great yeah ah I love, I love it so much. Um, it's yeah. It's it's a it, it's it's ridiculously complicated to explain. It, and I it probably sounds like we're just going all over the place, but that's kind of where, what the play is like. Yes, it's hard. I mean, this is really a hard play to kind of truly communicate just how hysterical it is. Although I do feel like we are doing a decent job of representing that this play is funny. It's it's incredibly funny. Whether we're making it make sense to a first-time listener is totally up for debate, but I think we sure. are doing a good job representing its humor. Yes. Although you and I are not very funny. No. I, I don't think I'm funny at all. Um, I, I That's think... what makes you funny, dear. You don't realize the shit you say is hysterical. Thank you. Um, well, and something that you and I had briefly discussed before we started recording 
sorry, behind the scenes, everybody, um, is that the show really is written to be performed like a well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. This is a show that really doesn't leave much room for interpretation because, especially because of the way the second act is written and it has to be so tight. Things that are happening offstage have to coincide with lines that are happening on stage in order for things to happen within the right time of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, the second act, at least, is a very... Is, is very unopened for interpretation yeah. in order for everything to go off the way that it's supposed to. Basically, as a director and as a cast, if you want to kind of have new fun with noises off, you have to start with nothing on. Right. And then go from there. So, like, figure out how nothing on, how's nothing on going to work for you in your production? Mm-hmm. Once you go from there, then you can create new situations for the backstage antics. I, yeah, I had a friend who actually stage managed the show at one point and for the I think it might have just been for the second act when they were rehearsing it um in the rehearsal studio, they had to they broke the act up into sections and you know like a b c d i don't know how many sections there were, but it, but to the point where because there's so much happening uh, simultaneously on stage and off, they would have various starting points where they would just say, we're starting from D and you would know exactly where that was in the on stage and off stage because mm-hmm. otherwise there was no way to truly sync up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to, they did it more for when they got into the theater mm-hmm. and they were in tech so that everybody could be on the same page and say, okay, we're starting from from E and everybody knew and it was, and everybody knew where what was happening. And that was only from the the point where the curtain goes up on nothing on until the end of the act Mm -hmm. but it was but there was just no other way for them to to break it down and for everybody to know where they were and to start on the same page it's it's really complex it is really complex as you mentioned well-oiled machine like it is it is down to the minutiae um Mm. with everything and when you do find a production of Noises Off where they are able to find a kind of include some new things, it's mm-hmm. really exciting. Because, again, like, there, this is not a play where you could do, like, a whole concept on it. Like, it's already a pretty high-concept play and was very high-concept for the time. Uh, the idea of sort of play within a play had been done before, but on usually on a much more esoteric level, something like Marat's side right. or The Real Thing, which will pop up when we talk about sort of the history and legacy with this show this was done for you know comedic effect and on top of that like the the meta-ness of the play is not meant for any kind of major thematic message it is sheer entertainment yes exactly like it's not like the real thing it's like the whole play within the play is supposed to be like a commentary on the director of the play and it's like how it's going with his psyche and we're outside it has a lot of political components to it noises off is just as you said pure entertainment and it just happens to be that it's about a theater company putting on a play and real life is mirroring the play right well and i and and i'll say if 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 anybody that's listening has never seen noises off first of all i would recommend seeing noises off but if you haven't and you but you have seen the uh any version of the play that goes wrong yeah the third act of noises off is basically 
I would say, a starting point for the play that goes wrong. It's very similar to that, where the play that goes wrong doesn't really give you any explanation of what's been going on mm-hmm. with with everybody that's performing. Noises Off, I, in my opinion, is a little more fun and successful because you have a backstory that leads up to this performance. Well, I was going to wait till we got to the <clears throat> Sorry. legacy of I know show, we're jumping but, ahead. No, but no. You know what? Let's just fucking do it. Uh, chaos, chaos, chaos. Yes, um... Play That Goes Wrong when I saw it. And I did like the play that goes yeah, wrong. Yeah, it's hilarious. It has a lot of great moments to it. But it it definitely hit a wall for me. Whereas Noises Off never does. Mm-hmm. Noises Off... Okay, so like Noises Off, the first act is probably the act that is the most tedious for some people. I think it's very funny. Um, it's, it's, it's the easiest act to fuck up. Because there's not... It's, it, you are setting up a house of cards that is then going to be torn down in acts two and three. Right. Um, so a lot of work goes in, so you, that way you know who all the characters are, what is the play they're doing, how it's supposed to go, and, like, where we're at. Yeah, I think Act 1 is is probably most important just in terms of character introduction. Yeah. Because I think it's so important, not only that you know people's relationships, but how each person handles a certain type of situation. Mm-hmm. So you... There, there are moments that happen within the show, and I'm not going to offer any examples, but there are moments that happen within the show where because you know, you've been introduced to various characters and know how they will approach something, you can sort of, there, there are setups that happen that have such a better payoff because you go, oh shit, this person is going to have to deal with this and they're not good at dealing with this mm-hmm. or they they only know how to deal with this in this one way. Um, like, and, like Frederick with the nosebleeds and the vertigo. Exactly. So so that I would say the payoff of the third act of Noises Off is, is, is just so much more gratifying because you've sort of you, you've gained a relationship with these people over the first two acts and really understand what their dynamic is and just how they, as people, uh, having to perform this show over and over again, maneuver the play. Uh, the play that goes wrong, I had no idea that it came from a company that's whole um, shtick was creating works that go wrong. Right. They did Peter Pan Goes Wrong. I think they did an Alice in Wonderland Goes Wrong, maybe. Um, yes. Chris, no, they did a Christmas Carol Christmas Goes Wrong. Christmas Carol, yeah. Um, they've done, like, yeah, they did a lot of TV specials like that. They had, um, I think they even had a series that was, like, half-hour episodes that was, like, each one was, like, a certain thing going wrong. I think, yeah, it's it's on Prime. I haven't watched any of it, but if, if you, if it's on Prime yeah. if anybody the wants whole, to it The whole premise of them was, like, the ingenuity in which they could make something go wrong uh-huh. uh, as a theater company. Yeah. Um, whether it's flubbing a line, whether it's a costume malfunction, a set piece going wrong, someone missing an entrance, things like that. Um, and th- again, as we talked about with like sitcoms and like the sex farces of the seventies with uh, English audiences, like that's all English audiences needed for entertainment for that company. Like, especially once you know that that's what this company does, mm. you know, like uh, on Glee, you always know they're going to mash something up. So it's like, oh, how are they going to mix this thing in there? <laughs> um, whether I think that's quality or not is whatever. That is sort of why, how, why the play that goes wrong was such a phenomenon on the West End. There was that sort of relationship with that company already. In America, we don't have that relationship with that company. We just had the play. And it was very entertaining. And it was very clever and creative. But yes, it is It is the third act of Noises Off stretched out over two hours. Uh-huh. And the only real build of it is how insanely wrong it all just goes so as where noise is off like also with the, the thing that these two shows also have in common is like noise is off in the play that goes wrong the actors on stage have a sense of dignity 
where, yes, things are going wrong, but we are going to try to cover as best we can. Right. Um, the humor coming from the fact that, like, they're not good at covering it at all. Right. Noises Off, as you mentioned, has has a deeper connection because we have spent two acts getting to know these characters, learning about their histories. So some things that happen on stage aren't necessarily funny because it quote unquote goes wrong. They're funny because we know characters relationships with each other. So we know that like Dottie and Gary were together. And by the end of the run, they're kind of at ends with each other. So when they see there's like, I think I can't remember if it's the roundabout one or if it's the Patty one. There's a bit of stage business in the third act when they are interacting and she like, hits him with the newspaper that's not part of the staging oh sure um like and it's like as she's going off she's like okay that's all great and then, like as she's walking off just like hits him over the head with the newspaper and it's funny because we know that they're they've been quarreling as lovers all tour right um yeah it's that you get it's that great payoff yes exactly whereas play that goes wrong we don't know any of these characters um relationships with each other right we also know that tim uh, is the understudy for all the men and might have to go on for Selsden. So in Act 3, when uh, Selsden's intro line is given and he doesn't show up, and then he shows up, uh, sorry, doesn't show up, then I believe uh, Tim... Tim comes in. Tim comes in first uh, to cover for him as the burglar. And then Selsden comes then in. Then Selsden comes in because he's he, he he just heard it a bit too late. Then he comes in. And then Lloyd comes in as the burglar because he, when he sees that no one's on stage, he panics, runs backstage, and all this happens. Right. Um, which wouldn't make sense if you didn't know the characters and their relationships to the play. Mm-hmm. Um, if that same thing could happen in a uh, play that goes wrong, and we, we as an audience, it would take us about an extra 30 seconds to connect the dots of why there were three uh, coming in. And Dottie's the one who ad-libs. They always come in threes, don't they? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Just like... So, That's right. So stupid. So good. <laughs> Love it so much. And then I think they do the same thing again with the chic at the end. Like, three different chicks. Oh, yes. Yeah, there, or maybe there's two. Yeah, there, but there's... Yeah, I think maybe it's two. Whatever it is, it's it's a, it's a really solid... It's Did a really it solid setup. Yes. So I just remember with Play That Goes Wrong, I was, like, laughing hysterically for the first hour, and then I kind of stopped in the second half. Not because it wasn't funny, but because I kind of got... It was a sugar rush that was like, I was kind of crashing. Yeah, it runs out of steam. Yes, for sure. Um, and like the set kind of completely falls apart to the point that we're at like a bare stage, whereas noises off it never gets to that moment. Right. Um, where it just looks like uh, post-apocalyptic. It's just like the set is still there. It just is, you know, been destroyed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, noises off was so popular. I mean, you wouldn't know it if you were to look on IBDB. You're like, oh, it ran for, you know, almost 600 performances. Like, that's a pretty good run for a play yes especially in the 80s noises off kind of whereas the theaters act in 68 in london uh ushered in an era of sex farces Mm. which then noises off is kind of um doing meta commentary on noises off led an onslaught of slapstick comedies in america Mm. like i don't think it's too much it's too far reaching to say i don't think we would have lend me a tenor if it weren't for Noises Off. Lend Me a Tenor comes out, I think, five or six years after Noises Off. Oh, for sure. Ken Ludwig can probably thank his career, well, and that dentist for uh, his... Uh... That dentist? Yeah, don't you know that story? I, ho- I hope nobody gets mad at me for telling this story. And I'm probably telling it wrong, so if anybody wants to correct me, please feel free. Um, there is There's a rumor that... Ken Ludwig, who wrote the the play Lend Me a Tenor, as well as the book for Crazy for You mm-hmm. and other things, um, there is a rumor. And others. And others. Um, <laughs> the sequel to Lend Me a Tenor? I don't remember. Um, oh, Moon Over Buffalo. 
Oh, that thing. Watch that um, documentary, uh, kids. If you've never seen, if you want to watch a play fall apart mm-hmm. to an uncomfortable level, but in real life. Well, if you want to lose a bit of your um, innocence on Carol Burnett, for sure. She got so fucked. Um, but yes, it, but she also does not act like the innocent no, angel no, 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 that no. people like to think she is. Anyway, yeah, it's 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 like it's like when the 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 uh, the the blanket got re- got taken off of Rosie O'Donnell when everyone thought she was the queen of nice, but she was a businesswoman. Oh yeah. Um. But anyway, <clears throat> no, there there was a there there's a long standing rumor that Ken Ludwig had a relationship with his dentist who was an incredibly funny but sort of like borscht belt type of humor uh humorist of a person Mm -hmm. and would constantly go to him for jokes and punchlines for his scripts and so there's there's always been this and i and i again if i'm telling this wrong please someone come at me and correct me because i'd love to have the the totally correct answer (laughs) but there's there's been a long-standing rumor that basically uh, Ken Ludwig's dentist wrote all of his best material. That is insane. Uh-huh. That sounds like a tinfoil conspiracy theory. Um, I'm, I, but it's also too insane to not be somewhat accurate. You know uh-huh. what I mean? It. I would love to see that play. Oh my god, that'd be a great play. Well, and it also explains a lot. Maybe like, Ken what... Ludwig can write it. <laughs> Or his dentist can write it. <laughs> I'm sure his dentist is dead by now. But, oh, that's true. But it, I mean, it also explains a lot because, like, Ken Ludwig. That's probably why he hasn't written anything recently. <laughs> well, so Ken Ludwig has two huge hits back to back. He has Lend Me a Tenor and then Crazy for You within mm-hmm. like three years of each other, two and a half years of each other. Yeah, something like and that. And then nothing. Nothing after that. Or at least nothing worthwhile. Right. Um, you know, whereas, you know, Michael Frayn has had a whole career as a really good playwright. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, lend me a tenor. I, I mean, I don't think it's even far reaching to say like the goes wrong company. Uh, I mean, maybe they would eventually come to be, but the idea of, uh, this kind of humor, of, mm-hmm. of, first of all, of slapstick humor coming back in full force with this, but also then sort of the meta commentary on theater. There is a play from the twenties or thirties called the Torchbearers, which is a little similar to noises off. Okay. But that is not about a professional company it's that play was written to um satirize the trend of amateur theaters because whereas now you know we know like oh uh aunt jean is doing a production of the music man with my dentist and my gynecologist right. um that was not a thing really um until the 20th century and it kind of had this big rise in the in the states and so the torchbearers was a i forget who the actual playwright was but it was their sort of satirization of that trend being like basically saying like this is why you should leave it to the professionals because people who think that they're artists when they really are nothing more than like an average human being uh trying to put on a play and they think that they're great when they're doing it in their living room then they put it on an actual stage and it all falls to shit I'm really stuck on thinking about somebody's gynecologist, like looking up from behind the stirrups and going, oh, by the way, are you going to come and see me play Harold Hill this weekend? I'm s- you really got me my brain there. I didn't I honestly hadn't didn't hear anything you said for the last 30 seconds, because all I could think of was some gynecologist telling their patient to come and see them do 76 trombones that weekend. It's also it's very true. I was watching Adam's face while I was talking. I'm like, did I lose him? I no, like, I just everything? couldn't. I, I was I was so stuck on that on that premise. <laughs> In the middle of your pap smear. By the way, I'm in 1776 this week. 
Uh, we just staged my, what's uh, the my... most awkward show you can think of for your gynecologist to tell you to come and see them in flower drum song <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh, God. oh no <laughs> are you gonna come see me play donkey and shrek <laughs> by the way your labia looks great Oh, by the way, just looking down there reminded me. I've been labias flo- have layers. Labias have layers. I just came, uh, just poking around down there reminded me. I'm in Floyd Collins this weekend. <laughs> he pokes around a bunch of cavernous spaces too. <laughs> Boo! Oh no! Fuck you! That was really good. no. It was good. It was good. Oh <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> Jesus Christ! I can't breathe. <laughs> Guys, this is what it's like to be in the audience of Noises Off. <laughs> oh, way to bring it back. Way to bring it back. Wait, so the movie. Okay. Oh, yeah, let's talk about the movie. I've only seen the movie once. Really? Yes. I remember not liking it very much. Did um, you see it before or after you saw the play? After. Okay. But also, like, my, I did not, I was not, like, in love with the play when I saw it. I, like, I really enjoyed it. Mm. And I thought highly of it. But I wasn't like, it has to be just like the thing. Right. I thought in a lot of ways they did a decent job. It's a really... It's a play that I think is almost impossible to turn into a movie because it's so about theater and specifically about being in the same room with those people while it's happening. Yeah. Uh, one smart thing they did, especially if they were doing it for, you know, uh, moviegoers, was mm. changing um, all the actors from British to American. They're still doing a British farce, oh, see? but the actors are American. Only only because, and this is after I did my Oliver recording with Margaret Hall, we were talking about the Oliver movie. Mm. Um you have as when you're making a movie and it's quote unquote for the masses, you sometimes have to make a decision of like what is going to make this easier on a mass scale than on like an uh intricate scale. And I think the idea to make them American actors putting on a British farce just takes away one element of complication away uh, away from it. So that way, basic enough people can still get it. I I see your point. I I'm gonna here's why I I feel like it doesn't work. And, 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 one, and one of the reasons that, so as I said at the beginning of all of this, when you were asking me about my history with knowing what Noises Off was, mm. th- since I saw the movie first, I do have an, a love and affection for the film. I think, I think if you haven't seen the show and you see the movie first and you don't have anything to compare it to, it's great and hysterical. Mm-hmm. I think though, especially as I got older and I, and I just learned a little bit more about, uh, not only, uh, not only theater, but, but especially, especially, uh, Brits and the way that they work and their sort of passive aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. There's a, there, there's a, there's a style to the writing, which we haven't really talked about yet, but we can talk about now, um, which is all of these performer all these characters the 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 actors uh playing these roles in the show anytime we're uh we're witnessing them uh not performing when they're just interacting with each other there is this odd passive aggressiveness that they all handle each other with where they call everybody my love and my precious and Mm -hmm. it's all it's all everything is bubbling right under the surface with them where it starts off in the kindest of ways and by the end it's a gritted teeth kind of way that americans do don't necessarily deal with each other and with in the same Americans. Way. Yeah, Americans are not as polite and afraid of confrontation as the Brits are, and yeah. especially in a theatrical setting like that. Um, yes, that that language is used sort of as daggers as the show continues. But also, 
you can tell that there's trouble brewing because every time that they say my love, my pet, my precious right. in the first act, it's anytime someone has messed up or sometime or a moment when someone is getting on the other one's nerves. Right. Um, so like when Frederick keeps going on about his intention, like his motivation. Right. And uh, Lloyd's like, but he's like, you know, it's yes, darling, but here's the reason why. Right. Uh, like it won't like doesn't have the time to discuss it. It's just yeah. There's a there's a great example. Uh, they're 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 held during the tech rehearsal for one reason or another, and they're about to start back up. And Gary, who cannot complete a sentence, mm-hmm. uh, just before they're about to go, says, "Well, before we start, Lloyd, can I just say one more thing?" <laughs> and and Lloyd, at this point, the director has yeah. given up, and he says, "I'm paraphrasing mm. as best, to, but trying the best I, I can." I know exactly. What you're He's, say. He says, "Lloyd, I've worked with a lot of directors in my time. Some of them were geniuses, some of them were bastards, but I've never worked with anyone who was so completely and totally, I don't know." And Lloyd says, "Thank you, Gary. I'm very touched. Now will you get off the fucking stage?" Yep. And it's very calm. Mm-hmm. It is. Probably not a reaction you would get out of an American director. No, and I and having seen it then from the movie in back into stage context with the entire show taking place in the UK, that type of dialogue makes more sense. The movie is smart in casting Michael Caine I was at, about to say. as as the director, so you do have that British sensibility with him playing that role. So that delivery does make more sense. And Nicolette Sheridan plays Brooke slash Vicky. And she's American, but she plays the character as British throughout the entire film, which I think helps that character make more sense as well. Absolutely. Um, the movie, I will say also, has a phenomenal cast. The the mov- the cast of that film, if I saw that cast on stage, I would have been over the moon. Yeah. Give, so, give me, take all my money. Yeah. Take all my so money. the cast of the film, if, 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 any, if for anybody that's unfamiliar, uh, is Michael Caine, Carol Burnett, uh, John Ritter... And uh, Christopher Reeve, RIP to both of them. Yeah. Christopher Reeve getting a chance to do comedy, which you did not get a chance to see him do very often. And no. he's incredibly skilled at. Yeah. Nicolette Sheridan, Marklin Baker. Uh, Mary Lou Henner. Mary Lou Henner, who's fucking brilliant. And she was a last minute replacement. Uh, oh, who was I, supposed to do it? I forget. Was it was Carrie Fisher again? <laughs> <laughs> what was the movie Carrie Fisher was supposed to do? Clue. Clue, right. She's supposed to be Leslie Ann Warren. No, um, I'll look up who was, who it was supposed to be. Um, but Mary Lou Henner, um, oh shit. The guy who, I'm trying to think of the guy who plays Selzin, but he's in Indiana Jones. Um, I, yes, I know who you're talking about, but, um, Julie Haggerty is Julie Poppy. Ha- oh, Julie Haggerty is Poppy. Um, and Poppy and Tim, we haven't talked about enough yet either. Um, uh. so Poppy and Tim are the, are the, the stage management. Poppy is, um, if if you if you've ever worked in in theater, mm-hmm. stage managers require a bit of uh, of being in charge of a room, and Poppy is not particularly skilled at this, as she is very soft spoken and kind, mm-hmm. and um, is not great at being in charge of 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 anything. Um, but she she does know the play. She is trying to do her job, but is sort of uh, stampeded over by everybody else who's a much bigger personality than she is. I'll put it this way. The most defiant, strong-willed, and best stage manager could maybe eke out a decent performance with this company. Right. Poppy is very sweet and, and and quiet well and, and and if you're familiar with with julie haggerty as an actress it, even her stuff in like airplane or whatever yeah and she always has that very soft spoken voice mm-hmm. where she talks like this 
is basically Poppy. It's brilliant casting. And Tim, uh, who's the other stage manager, is uh, is is more more often than not his his biggest fault is that he's exhausted because he's being yeah. run ragged so yeah. i think in act one he's had he's working on 48 hours be, being awake for 48 hours straight and built helping build the set because like he can't be there to help someone with a costume change because he's already doing something else on the other side of the right. stage like <laughs> again it's this is a small tour everyone is being pulled very thin yes the two stage managers are basically are also doing the jobs of the entire crew as well like right. there's there are no dressers for this show there's right. no backstage crew it's these two people um also it's annie potts was supposed to be oh. belinda and uh oh that's great casting too yeah she was in a car accident and had to be replaced by. oh Mary my god Lepenner. i remember when she got in a car accident well you would because you were 17 at the time that's a lie. I know. But I do uh, remember that. They also originally offered Dottie to Audrey Hepburn, and she said no, so they gave it to Carol oh, Burnett. thank God, because Carol Burnett yeah. is well, so good in this I movie. love me some Audrey. I do, too. She, that's not her role, especially no. at that point of her life. No. Um, I, I will say, this is yet another role that Carol Burnett did the film version of that was originated by Dorothy Loudon on the Broadway stage. Yep. Um, and, I, and, and again, the, I, I will say... This mo- the movie is done well enough that I think that there are many line readings that, because it was my first exposure to it, are sort of paramount in my mind to other line readings of versions of mm-hmm. it. Carol Burnett really attacks this role and does a fantastic job with it. Yes. She's hysterically funny. And, and John Ritter, um, one of Gary's other uh, uh, bits is is he's, he has probably the most physical comedy in the show. He has yes. to fall downstairs. He has to trip over lots of things. Um, and John two- Ritter, who was well known for his physical comedy, really has yeah. a chance to, to show this off in the I'd film. Say the two characters who probably do the most physical comedy are Gary and Brooke. Because Brooke ha- Brooke when oh, Brooke right. loses her contact, she runs into things a lot. And so, in heels. And in heels. And in her underwear. The, on, so the role... Every time this show has been done on Broadway, the actress who plays Brooke gets nominated for a Tony Award, and in the case of Katie Finneran, has won. It was Deborah Rush in the 80s. Didn't Deborah Rush win? She did not. Oh, she didn't? Well, okay, so how about this? So the show opened, got really great reviews. Frank Rich was like, this might be the funniest play of my lifetime, um, and he's not wrong. The play was nominated for uh, four Tony Awards, including Best Play, Director, um, Supporting Actress for Deborah Rush, and one more that I can't think of. But it was up against The Real Thing, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and Play Memory. Uh, and they lost Play, Supporting Actress, and Director to The Real Thing. Mike Nichols won. Mike Nichols won for The Real Thing. And Christine Baranski won for The Real Thing. Right. As did um, Glenn Close and I believe Jeremy Irons. Good times. Good times. Uh, you know who was not nominated for The Real Thing? A young Cynthia Nixon. And I say erasure to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Uh, do, so, okay. Two major revival, revivals on Broadway. You yep. saw the first one. I saw both of them. Well, you saw the first one first. Yes, I did. On my very <laughs> on my very first trip to New York in 2001. Because it came out 15 years before. Yeah, right after... It was right. It, it was in previews right after uh, 9-11. Yes, it was. That's the first time, but not the last time, that 9-11 is going to pop up on this podcast. Yep. It was... It started, it started previews right after 9-11. Um, my first trip to New York was uh, end of October of 2001. And um, that was maybe the last show that I saw on that trip. Mm-hmm. But it was it was the only show that I paid full price for because you couldn't... I don't know why they weren't offering Rush tickets for it, but it was it like... Was a, well, it was a pretty big ticket at the time. And Rush was not 
that consistent of a thing in that's true that's true but i remember i bought a uh a mezzanine ticket for it for like 65 dollars which now seems like a bargain yeah but the cast really was impressive. Oh, we can we can discuss that cast. So that cast, uh, Patty Lapone uh, mm-hmm. played Dottie. Um, uh, Faith Prince played Belinda slash Flavia. Um, who else was in it? Uh, we were talking about Peter, Peter Gallagher, Gallagher played the director. T.R. Knight of Grey's Anatomy. Oh yeah, T.R. Knight. His, the, my first exposure. A lot of people's first exposure to him mm-hmm. um, as Tim. Uh, Richard Easton was Selsden. Right. Katie Finneran uh, nominated and won Tony Award for playing Brooke. She was honestly fucking hilarious yeah katie finneran has and i because i've seen her do it in other shows too and it's not a read it's it's similar to like a nathan lane kind of thing where she has mastered a specific kind of voice yes to do for a kind of comedy like noises off where you're doing a bad actress doing bad acting yes and it's a certain timber and it's a certain line delivery and it's so specific and it kills every time she kills it with this again the why did i lock the door why did you lock the door it must have cost you a bum. Yeah. Like, she does this. She also did this thing in the video I watched where when she enters as Vicky in the first act and she says to Roger, like, basically asking, like, where's the bedroom? But she doesn't say bedroom. She has to go, like, she, where's Where, the, you know. You know. And she, when she does it, she does, like, a, like, it's, like, she does, like, a pelvic thrust, but also, like, a head jilt. So she's, like, where's the, you know. Right. So you get a titty bounce. Kind of. Yeah. I was reading Ben Brantley's review for that uh, production. He was like, even her cleavage is funny. Yeah. No, it was that that revival. um, It was hit and miss. Um, Unfortunately, even though I love Patti LuPone, um, she fell uh, victim to one of the most frequent complaints about Patti LuPone, which is that you can't understand her, Mm -hmm. um, especially when she has an accent. And it was... I mean, luckily going in, I knew the show very well, so I knew the lines. So I did find her somewhat funny, but I, but it, a lot of her her delivery was 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 very difficult to understand. Patty also in that production from the video I watched, uh, fell victim to something that's very easy to do with this show, which mm. is to go really for broke in a cartoonish way. Yeah. Um. And the truth is that while they while this is a farce and it's a farce of a farce. You also need to believe that these are people. Like, part of the humor is watching these, like, really, you know, mostly well-meaning people, but kind of, you know, are in over their head, just, like, completely flounder the entire time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, like, sort of a... I think I told you before we recorded, it's, like, cartoonish realism. Right. It's not a full-blown cartoon. It's not a documentary. And Patty kind of was going a little too big. She was like, one, I leave the sardines. Yeah. Like, come on, woman. I, yeah, I, I think... Well, and it's one... Because it's one of those things where, you know, I think that obviously m- many actors are already larger than life. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to do a whole lot more. And then, you know, to do farce, I don't... You, you don't need to, you don't need to add a ton of shit on top of it. It's you know, it's sort of trusting the material, maybe having like a funny line reading or two, but it's if you if you're over gilding the lily, then you lose the tempo and the and and the lines. Well, the and it's it's a weird balance because what makes comedy comedy is that the character doesn't think it's funny. Correct. If you ever watch Elaine May and Mike Nichols's comedy routines together, mm-hmm. which is first of all all improv so that's insane but they're no real like major jokes and they're never like playing up the fact that it's comedy like elaine may is in like a, like a she's like in a documentary yeah uh, but it what makes it so hysterical is how real the situation is to those characters right um so like what makes noises off funny is to see these characters like 
think of this as like life and death. It's not funny to anyone that Frederick gets nosebleeds and vertigo from violence. It's not funny to anyone that Brooke keeps losing her contact. No, they're all concerned for yeah. for their fellow actor for sure. Yeah. And so the balance is knowing as an actor that it's supposed to be funny, but also not making the character in on the joke. The moment you kind of break that fourth wall to sort of show the audience, I'm a pretty smart actor. I know better than my character. It's like, yeah, no fucking duh. Yeah. 95, 95% of stories is about a character making a wrong decision for the majority of the time and then finally making a good one at the end. Right. As opposed to Noises Off where everyone's making kind of good decisions and then they all make bad decisions as it goes on. Yeah. Um, so, oh, before, but so before we get into the, the, the next revival, I, I do want to say my one thing that I don't hold, don't think holds up with Noises Off. Yes. And it's, and, but would I say, I'm saying it before we go into the next revival, because the 2001 revival, as far as I can remember, was still set in a contemporary setting. It was okay. set in 2001. Okay. The 2016 revival made the very smart decision to set the revival, to, to set their whole show mm-hmm. in uh, probably the late 70s, early 80s, when the original yeah. production premiered. Yeah. And the reason that I think this is smart is because the one thing that I don't think holds up in this show is the Arab business sure based you know from from what we see nowadays and i and the only reason the only and i i don't know the one thing that i had the one issue that i had with the uh the roundabout revival was that it was well but true to roundabout sorry everybody although i will say they're making leaps and bounds this upcoming season the whitest fucking cast yes there was not a single person of color in that show nope and um none of these roles have anything to do with a race like you could so it could very easily be cast mm-hmm. multiracial you know not even colorblind like literally it there's no reference to what well, what these characters look like i would i would say probably this is a show where you could technically make it colorblind casting cuz i don't like that term mostly i, I think of it as more color conscious because you don't want to erase um anyone's ethnicities you want like that that's sure something you can bring to the role but with something like noises off where it's also you know surface level it, it can literally be anyone right i'm, I'm yeah my, my yeah to my point I, my point just is that it's it's written in such a way that anybody could play these roles 100 percent. um and i but the reason that i say again that the that i was glad that they set the show uh back in its original time period of the late 70s early 80s is because it's the only way that you can kind of make the excuse that the chic joke is funny luckily it's not a very long joke mm-hmm. um and it's more uh just about uh, a mistaken identity moment mm-hmm. there's just that the slightly unfortunate middle eastern fake accent that happens sure there's luckily no brown face or anything but no. it's 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 the one little questionable moment that, that remains in the script that is fair again because of just like precision things like it's it's worth it for the third act sure when you have two and then there's sort of the who's who and you take off the the Mm -hmm. robes and all that but yes it's i think setting it in the late 70s early 80s for a play that was probably written like right in 1969 uh because what they're doing also isn't a new play this is supposed to be something that's a couple years old at this point i believe Right. Um, so it makes more sense to set it back when this type of show was yes. at the height of its fame. And in fact, there are times, again, with Frederick and whatnot, people ask questions about the script all the time. And Lloyd's like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, right. this isn't a good script. Right. Well, and and, not, and on top of all of that, I mean, the fact that uh, Dottie repeatedly refers to the television as being the color set because she doesn't have a color TV mm-hmm. at home. Um, the telephone has to be a 
landline a, a landline with a receiver mm-hmm. and a cord is so much of a huge part of the stage business that's written in yeah it it, it it at this point i it's not a period piece but it does require that it does that it takes place in a certain decade well so in brooks underwear is very much of that totally. era. like what brooke is wearing no modern day woman wears unless it's for like role playing with their person right well and i think and i and i think part part of her the way her um her underwear is created is also out of necessity just because of how much physicality she has to do Mm -hmm. brooke is never they they say her underwear she's usually in some type of a corseted top um and leggings and uh, with with uh with a right with a legging and garters Mm -hmm. um and and underwear stockings and yeah um but she's not just like in a bra and panties which would be impossible to do the amount of physical work that she has to do without everything popping out exactly and also it it it's perhaps the most exposed the actress can be physically while also not feeling that super exposed right um because like the character of vicky in nothing on is written to be eye candy but you don't want brooke to actually be eye candy right so it's that weird again double edged story you have to figure out what to do and they were very smart to make it that corset with stockings right whatnot and so to just jump ahead to the 2016 revival i would say um you know casting aside i I thought the cast for this revival was all things considered, a great cast across yep. the board. Um, uh, you had Andrea Martin playing Dottie Otley, who was um, who is much better suited to this role than than Patty. than than Patty Lapone Lupone, yep. uh, and and surprisingly more uh, appropriate than Audrey Hepburn. Right. Um, we had um, uh, we had David Fur, who was nominated for a Tony Award for playing Gary, who took some incredible falls. Mm-hmm. Um, Megan Hilty, who <laughs> Megan Hilty, who uh, played Brooke slash Vicky, who had a very interesting take on the role. It took me a minute to get used to her take, but sure, one of my but she came up with a bit, and it it I, it may have been collaborative. It maybe it may have been all her own, but it was a it was something that I think is so genius. The the level of depth, that, <laughs> no pun intended, the level of depth that she chose for this character. Because you can tell she's realized that at any time one of her contacts could fall out, she has thought far enough to head to count the number of steps to the edge of the stage and to get to certain places. Mm -hmm. So in watching Megan Hilty, a lot of times you would see her mouth moving and saying the other person's line along with them. Mm But also, you'd see her counting her number of steps, her mouth moving, going one, two, three, four, five, to certain places, so that if her contact fell out, she'd know how far she had to go to get to a certain spot, Mm -hmm. which I thought was... And to make sure also it didn't go into the audience. Like, she didn't go so far to the edge of the stage that if it were to fall out, it would go to there. Right. She also did... I forgot about the uh, mouthing people's lines along with them. I remember... Like halfway through Act One, because I was in the front row of the mezzanine, and like the American the Airlines theater, seat for that show. Yeah, the American Airlines is a small enough theater where, like, mm-hmm. even if you're in the last row, you can still see some intricacies of people's faces and whatnot. Yeah, um, it's like a 700 seat theater, which is about the size of the booth. The front row of the mez hangs over a row G of that theater, yeah. so it's it's you're, there's you're, not a bad seat in that house. You're honestly, gold, you're golden pony boy. Yeah. Um, but I remember like halfway through Act One, realizing that she was mouthing other people's lines, <laughs> and started chuckling to myself. Uh, she also did a bit, and we talked about this, and we're going to say it now, so it's in public record, so everyone knows. Uh, there's a bit in Act One where Vicky 
and nothing on gets scared because Vicky starts to think that the house is haunted because doors because, are shutting and right. she's hearing voices. Things are appearing and disappearing. Yes. And then she sees, yeah, the sardines are gone, right. which I love in Act 3 when, because people are are not placing their props where they're supposed to be, there's always something with the sardines where it's like, the sardines are here. No, they're not. That's right. They're in the kitchen because, like, someone forgot to leave them there sure. and then someone forgot to take them. Right. So when uh, Vicky's like, the sardines are gone and Roger's like, they're not. And I said, they're still there. But they probably were gone. Like, it's that kind of bullshit. Anyway, uh-huh. but so Vicky gets scared at one point to the point where she has to run out of the house screaming. Oh, yeah. And the set, <laughs> the, the, so the set is obviously, you know, like, it's the living room and upstairs of the of the house. And you have a little window that shows you the uh, front garden, which is necessary for the burglar to smash and, and mm-hmm. look into. And Brooke, as Vicky, runs out screaming and shuts the door. And then Brooke... Starts the walk the actress starts walking off stage, forgetting that the audience can see her through the window. And this was I don't know if this was a Megan Hilty choice. I don't know if this was a director choice. Whoever decided it is brilliant. Because when she did it, and we talked about this, I you said she did it in both acts. I only remember it happening in the third act. She did it. She definitely does it and did it in the first act. Okay. Because my memory is it, ha- it happening in act three. Yeah. Although it, ha- it, make, it makes sense if it's in act one and three, because then in act three, when everything goes to shit and then she still does that. Yep. Makes it doubly hilarious. But I just remember Megan, Meg, Megan, it's Megan Hilty, right? Megan Hilty. Yeah. I was about to say Meg Hilty. <laughs> I'm like, it's not Meg. It's Megan Hilty. <laughs> Megan Hilty running out with her arms up going like, ah! Like, like E.T. Yeah, very, yeah. She did E.T. arms. It's, it's very Anna Faris and Scary Movie running oh, down totally. the hallway with the arms up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ah! Clo- shutting the door. And then you just see her silently through just, the window. Just, just <laughs> character totally dropped. Yep. Arms swinging side to side. Uh-huh. And it was brilliant. And I fell out of my seat. The other thing about that revival that I'm very grateful for is... I've gone to see two shows with my father, uh, alum of the pod, Peter Koplick. If you want to listen to him, uh, go to the Follies episode of the Sondheim series. Great episode. Thanks, dear. You haven't said anything about it, so I'm glad to hear that now. Um, I don't want your head to get too big. Well, no, you liked it because of my dad, not because of me. Uh, That's true. I tell my dad when people like his episode because he uh, is constantly surprised that anyone has listened to it. <laughs> and he'll, I, I tell him sometimes, I'm like, someone really liked your episode. And he's like, who listened to it? And he's like, "Who? Like you've had Broadway people on your podcast. Why did anyone listen to me?" Because, um, because honestly, it's I mean, uh, Peter, if you're listening, I'll tell you why. <laughs> because as you know, as as anybody who loves theater, if you're if there was a show that you didn't have an opportunity to see in person, and you have a chance to speak to somebody who got to experience it in real life and know what the feeling was like in that room, that is something that you cannot recreate. Mm-hmm. And so to get to hear from a person who got to experience that and hear their account of what that was, that's a very, it's an intangible, uh, it's an intangible thing that is such a great, I, I don't know. It's something yeah. that, that theater buffs like me love to hear because mm-hmm. whenever I'm telling anybody about a show that I liked, you know, one of, especially if, if it was a room that was so electric, mm-hmm. I think that's one of those things that's so fun to explain to somebody mm-hmm. what, it, you know, I mean, cause so I hate when somebody says, well, you had to be there or, you know, it, yeah. it was great in the room, yeah. but when, but when that's all that somebody says, it's like, well, why, why was it great in the room? And you, 
but you but you can explain why that was and what that what that energy was in the room then that's what makes it exciting and so you know to hear somebody talk about their experience and seeing follies and what it was like being in a room and hearing an audience react to things or not react to things and well, what so my father didn't see follies when it first came out right and, and it's one of his greatest regrets he saw company when it came out right and that and that was yeah. that was i hearing him talk about company was a really exciting yeah. thing just you know because i heard uh uh r.i.p gary beach was a, a friend of mine uh and before he passed he told me a lot of great stories of things that he saw back in the 70s mm-hmm. and, and 60s before he had made his Broadway debut and and hearing him talk about going to see company and sitting in the audience and being like, the show started with a, you know, with a busy phone signal sound. Mm-hmm. You'd never heard that in a musical. Like mm-hmm. you're sitting there going, what the fuck is happening? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is written for me. This mm-hmm. is written for younger people who, who get this, this energy and this buzz of life in New York city. Yep. So anyway, and my dad is a very specific case where he was a young age that could appreciate Sondheim and the newness of his stuff right. while also being very aware of the older generations and knowing why they were so hostile. Right. Um, like he had a foot in both rooms. Right. Cause you grew up, cause you grew up with cast albums and Ed Sullivan being a normal thing. Yeah. He, so that's Thank you, say, Peter. Thank you, Peter. That is to say, I've seen many of shows with my father. There are two shows where I took him to see it, no, have, hearing what he had to say beforehand, knowing he was going to change his mind once the show was over. Mm. One was Little Shop of Horrors when we saw it at the Regent's Park Open Air Theater in London, and one was Noises Off, this revival, the uh-huh. 2016 revival. Because my father saw Noises Off in the 80s, and uh, as... you know. He likes to talk about, you know, when shows come in with a lot of buzz and whether, like, audiences were responsive to it or not. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, Cats was one of those things where it's like, it was so huge and the buzz was so great and no one knew anything about it. Basically, everyone saw it and was like, the fuck? Right. But it was too big of a thing. It was truly, like, a nonsuch situation with, like, uh, Huck Finn where no one was willing to admit that they just shelled out 90 bucks for a thing they didn't understand uh-huh. that was also like sweeping the world so they were like yeah no it's it's pretty good it was like took new york a solid five years to finally be like no this isn't what we like right but anyway and by that point it was too late but noises off was another one where like it was coming in from london and like you heard all these great things about it frank rich raved about it so everyone's like what is this amazing thing right and my dad said he remembered being a little underwhelmed by it mm. and then he only saw little shop of horrors off broadway and he, he just must have had a bad theater going experience that night because then he like took it out on the show he's like well, little shop of horrors isn't very good but anyway afterwards my dad was like oh yeah this show is way better than i realized mm-hmm. then he started to change his tune about west end sing- uh, musical theater performers he's like they're just as good here as uh, as we have over there like i don't know why everyone's saying that then we saw everyone's talking about jamie and he's like oh yeah that ensemble's kind of lackluster i'm Never like mind. Yes. yeah he forgot when we saw dirty round scoundrels and like 90 percent of the cast couldn't do a kick noise is off i take him to go see at the roundabout and he was like it's not great i don't know why you're taking me to see this and by the end of act one he's like this is pretty funny and then end of act two he's like pissing himself yeah and i knew that it was gonna happen i just kind of because i wanted to fucking shout in his face that he was wrong he's gonna change his mind but i was like it's just gonna happen it's gonna happen he's gonna change his mind and he did both times well it was so when that production ran it was uh i worked at roundabout theater company for quite a while So I'm not telling tales out of school, um, but the I He's will. He's not sa- talking about Megan Hilty's coke problem. 
you said that. I, that's that is not true. <laughs> I Megan Healthy, I love you. Um, I know it's not true. But uh, but as somebody who dealt firsthand with a lot of uh, roundabout subscribers, mm-hmm. it was a show that when it was announced, there were a lot of subscribe. I mean, their subscriber base has been and always will be, you know, on the older end of things. Yes. I, as I think generally subscribers are for any sort of subscription house in New York City. Um, but a lot of them were kind of on the same fence as your dad, where, you know, you're sitting there saying, you know, people call in and re- to renew their subscription and, and, uh, and you say noises off when you're listing off their shows and people are like, oh God. And you're like, and, and and as somebody who really likes the show, you 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 try not to get defensive about it because you're like, well, what don't you like about it? And you know, and, and a lot of people who just, I I think it probably was a lot a similar situation where many of them probably fell through the hype of the original production where they went and saw it and were underwhelmed because it was overhyped. Um, and then, you know, and I even got a little nervous going in because so many people that I had spoken to were so seemed to be so unexcited about this revival. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed, I mean, any of you younger people listening to this show, I will tell you right now that when you hit a certain age, once you go past that years meld into nothing and mm-hmm. nothing seems to have ever any sense of time. So when I heard that this revival was happening, which was honestly 15 years after the previous revival, I was like, but we just revived it. Mm. So this, this is how time works. But um, you know, we, but there were other people that were having a similar reaction to this. This show was just on Broadway and it's like, no, actually it, it's been 15 years, yeah. which is a substantial amount of time. Um, I was very pleased in going to see the dress rehearsal and subsequently, um, a, a couple, I think one or two other performances of it a little bit later in the run where it, it, it really did hold up as a piece. It was staged really well. The cast was great. It was hysterically funny. And I was, I was thrilled that it, yeah. it it managed to you know reach a new audience and it always has and i mean i think also because the 2001 revival was kind of like it wasn't indifferently received the reviews for that revival were strong but basically everyone was like this is really good it's just not as good as it could be and sure. that and the 80s production was like got legendary reviews like everyone's like i've never seen a play this funny right and so everyone was really pumped for it especially because the cast was so cool and so everyone was really pumped for it and it like was a good revival it had its moments where it was hysterically funny and then other pockets where it's like Meh. because if you watch the bootleg which is on youtube it is very clear that like when i talk about like not making these people totally cartoons there are moments in that revival where they go too far on the other end where they have these like long stretches of silence when like something uncomfortable happens and it's like that silence needs to be like cut into a third of what you have right mm-hmm. now and and like faith prince got lover is trying to do something a little more grounded and realistic and it's just not gelling with everything else there is i wish i searched and searched when you when when you when we talked about the fact that we were doing this together um there there was an interview with dorothy dorothy loudon from maybe the tonight show or something some some late night talk show from like 1983 Mm -hmm. and it was uh and they but she was on there to talk about noises off and there was footage of noises off in this interview it was on youtube at some point i don't know i searched and searched and i couldn't find it um but it was a scene between her and and victor garber Mm -hmm. i think it was from the very top of the show yeah i looked and looked if i can find it ever if i ever find it again i will make sure that matt has it and he can post a a link to it sure um but it's it was 
so exciting to get a chance to see those particular people doing this show. One last thing about, now you bring up Dorothy Loudon, it's just like a perfect example of like how to do this kind of show and then mm. we'll wrap things up. So if anyone listened to the um, Annie episode with my mom where we discussed like, is Annie actually good or bad? And the answer is that yes, Annie the show is good. The first movie is bad. The TV version is very good. It's just very different from the show. And in fact, actually kind of reinforces the idea that it's this saccharine show when it's actually not. It's quite offbeat when you think about it. Mm. If you listen to any audio of Dorothy Loudon as Miss Hannigan, there is there is audio of her dialogue in it. And you see like photos of her in the role and whatnot. Dorothy Loudon had this very expressive face and these big buggy eyes. And mm-hmm. you can watch performances of her. She does a great mashup at uh, Sondheim at Carnegie Hall where she does Losing My Mind With You Can Drive a Person Crazy. Brilliant. Yes, and does like the most coked out version of Broadway Baby at the Tony Awards. And she's, and she's aware that it's insane. And she even tells to Stephen Sondheim, you didn't know what you had with this one, did you, Steve? That, if, if anybody has not watched that 19, 19- 1984 Tonys that whole that whole Tony Awards is actually one of the best yep. that exists the the lineup of shows nominated that year are great and they all give a great Tony performance they all get a great Tony performance Dorothy Loudon though has Broadway Baby and then she comes on again for a Jerry Herman salute and she comes in sitting on top of a limousine where they're singing the title song of MAME mm. and she's in a white dress and she's wearing a tiara and she's just screaming yeah. at Jerry Herman in the audience. She's one of those people where you watch her and you're like, I don't know how she gets away with this, but pe- but she does. Yeah. And it is very funny. Well, and it's so, nuts. Okay, so here's the thing with her. And she played Dottie in the original 80s production. Yes. I, I'm going to explain why her Miss Hannigan is still the most iconic Miss Hannigan. And then that will carry over into Noises Off. I'm going to have a follow up on that for you. Okay. I know we're getting to the end. The way Dorothy Loudon kind of treated the children on stage as Miss Hannigan. Mm -hmm. Yes, she was sort of like the villainy heel. But the way she treated the kids was very much like, this is out of self-preservation. If I don't get you, you're going to get me first. So when she like points at two feet tall Molly and says, your days are numbered. It's with such vigor mm-hmm. that you know she means it but not out of like vengeance but out of pure fear that she she truly believes in her like vodka induced slumber mm-hmm. that five-year-old molly is watching over her at night with a knife and a pillow mm-hmm. um and it's hysterical yep it's hysterical it's this this mat this mania and this uh intensity and then and and also just like this kind of um insecurity when you there's audio for little girls from it's the last preview before they open Mm -hmm. and the way she interacts with these girls right before leading up to little girls because there's that whole bit where she's going through the orphanage and like each girl has a different thing and one girl's like you know that satin oh the satin pillow from from coney Coney island Island. yep and you hear the way dorothy loudon says yeah she's like yeah like she knows the worst is about to happen oh yeah molly threw up on yep and every other miss hannigan's always like yeah yeah and it's like no dorothy loudon is in her hell and it's wonderful to watch may may i do my piggyback before you go into noises off yes 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 so um one of my favorite stories i ever heard from gary beach um just because i want to keep that man's memory alive god do bless that man um he uh he and i uh sat at his kitchen table once with a martini and talked about all sorts of in the same conversation with talking about um, company and, and whatnot, we were talking about Annie. So, um, quick side note: the entire cast of Annie. I don't know if you talked about this. Our, like a year and a half into the run, everybody in the cast of Annie got fired and replaced. Yes. Okay. So if this oh, has been wait, covered, sorry. no, we sorry, 
we did not talk about that because uh, Martin Charnin was a family friend and I didn't want to speak too disparagingly about him, but I knew about the massive firing. Right. So, yeah, I, w- I won't speak negatively of it, but that was a fact and a thing that actually happened. Yes. Gary Beach was the replacement rooster. Um, and his per- his performance of Easy Street is on YouTube. It's you should watch it. Speaking of cocaine-induced, oh, holy shit, it's, it's, it's nuts. It's him. Uh, it's Rita Rudner. Rita Rudner and Betty, uh, Betty Hutton, I think. Betty Hutton. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's an incredible. We're talking performance. like Gumby legs, and it's but it's when I when I talk about how I wish that Broadway performers knew how to sell it nowadays, mm-hmm. and many of them don't. Yep. Go back and watch Gary Beach sell the living shit out of Easy Street. Anyway, we were talking about he saw multiple uh, actresses uh, over his time in Annie uh, play. Uh, Miss Hannigan, and he said that none of them ever came close to Dorothy Loudon's performance. And so I was like, well, by all means, please tell me what about Dorothy Loudon's performance was so captivating. And he said many things that you've already said. Um, and he, but he said that she, he, he said that she was the voice of the audience because you didn't want it to be a saccharine show. She was the voice of the, all of the adults in the audience who were like, Jesus Christ, this fucking kid. Yeah. And so she was your, the, the adult's window into the show and that slightly cynical edge to everything. Um, but he said that one of the things that made her version of the character so appealing, besides the worn downness of everything, and one of the reasons she became, she was an alcoholic, um, and he said that everything came from, pardon, this is, I've said this word a million times on this episode already, everything came from her pussy. She was pussy driven. Mm-hmm. She was horny as fuck. She, I mean, and and all she wanted was a chance to get out of that orphanage for one night, get a good lay, and go drinking and, and be out on the town. Mm-hmm. And she never could do it. Mm-hmm. And you could just sense how pent up and frustrated this poor woman was. And it's, and it, so that's exactly what you're saying, just how... You know, but if you watch her performance from the Tony Awards, another ex- great example of how to sell the Easy Street, and those orphans too, selling the shit out of fully yeah. dressed, that audience breaks into applause like nine times during that number. It's insane. But if you watch Dorothy Loudon's performance, and he, and and then go watch uh, Betty Hutton, mm-hmm. uh, Dorothy Loudon, while huge, also her movement is very uh, constrained. And she very much leads with little pelvic thrusts through mm-hmm. everything. She does it in her Broadway Baby performance, too. It's a very much a Dorothy Loudon thing. But so much of it is sex-charged. Mm-hmm. And 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 he he loved the fact that Dorothy Loudon let Miss Hannigan be a sexual being. And it's something that no other Miss Hannigan ever, he ever saw do. Because every, I mean, Carol Burnett has a little bit of it. Say, well, Carol Burnett, the reason why... It, it doesn't land as well for me anyway. She's goofy. And she's goofy. And also that whole movie is horny. Like yeah. everyone is horny, including the orphans. It's a very horny movie. Yes. In such a weird way. Yeah. But she, but Dorothy Loudon had let the character have a sexuality. Mm-hmm. And it was something that he didn't see any of the replacement Hannigans have. They all were just mean and drunk. Yes. Um, but all that to say, Dorothy Loudon, what a freaking phenomenal performer. And now I will let you go on with what well, you were so, going to say about her as Dottie Otley. Well, so that mentality about Hannigan and that, and that expressive face and the, and the way you treat a comedic character that is so over the top of like, what is their ultimate fear? What is their ultimate drive? Elaine May also always says when in doubt is an actor seduce. Um, and it's got to come from a real place. Yeah. Well, again, the character doesn't think it's funny. Right. 
So, and Dorothy Loudon was a master. I don't want to say the best because, like, who are we to say who the, technically the best was? Sure. But she was a master at having that balance as an actor of knowing what it was that was funny about the situation, but never making it a way that the character was at the cost of the character. Let's sure. Think. Uh, there was never like a self-congratulatory wink at the audience, which there are some Tony-winning actors out there who have won for comedic performances who I think are very talented, but they have a knack of winking at the audience that I want to go up there and rip their wigs off. Sure. I do. Um, We have some wonderful performers out there, and some of those wonderful performers have given wonderful performances. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Okay. Um, but something I really do, I did like about that 2016 Noises Off was I didn't feel like any of those actors were commenting. I thought they did, I thought they did a really good job of really playing it. No, they were all very much in the situation. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was actually surprised and it grew on me as I went and saw it. You and I talked about this before. Andrea Martin, when I saw The Invited Dress, <clears throat> was clearly still finding her footing in the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's a, the show is a lot. You know, it's yeah. like if I mean, it's 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 so much to keep you're on your toes as an actor for the entire show. It's it's one of those shows where you really can't stop thinking about what you're doing. Yeah. And I would imagine that any and all of them were probably overwhelmed by invited dress when you're just trying to get through this show that these poor actors are trying to get through within a show. Yep. But going back and seeing it again, Andrea Martin, who is somebody who I've seen walk away with things was really this, this was truly an ensemble cast in this particular production. And while everybody had a moment to stand out, you were never sitting there going, just staring at one of the performers the Mm -hmm. entire time. And I've seen her never in a bad way, but I've seen her draw focus and really be somebody who pulls your eye. And she really was so connected with this character where you saw her, you know, I mean, she did her Andrea Martin thing where there was plenty of silly, you know, silliness and face pulling and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. But it it really felt grounded for her. Yeah. And I really appreciated where, where that she was clearly on board with everybody else that was in this show. And they were all very much a part of the same beast that everybody was watching. 100% agree. Great. Nothing left to say. Adam, where can people find you if you want them to find you? <clears throat> Mostly on Instagram. Um, I have uh, two accounts now since we last spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, I finally finished gra- taking uh, my, my graphic design course. Uh, I'm available if anybody's interested. N- not not in the romantic sense, but in the design sense. Uh, I know. Sorry, everybody. Um, but you can find me on Instagram uh, either at Adam Ells, A-D-A-M-E-L-S, or at Adam Ellsbury Design. Uh, Ellsbury is E-L-S-B-E-R-R-Y, same as raspberry, blueberry, blackberry whatever your whatever your flavor um and you can also uh find my work directly at adamelsberry.com where i have my full portfolio listed sadly i don't talk about theater really anywhere other than in person and with matt on this podcast so you're not going to get a lot of that on my my uh instagram but uh but please come check me out follow me and uh i i try to update as much as i can it's great he's fun to follow i'll just say that um and his stuff is good he didn't do the artwork for this podcast i'm so sorry to say but that's because he was in the middle of school i think when i was looking for artwork to begin with <laughs> um his plate was full and now he's missed the boat who, wait who, who is your artist for your it's a friend of mine from college her name is jenna Rogalski. well jenna follow jenna Rogalski because her work for matt's podcast stuff is great i really like her style yeah no we we 
we love Jenna. Uh, and at this point, everyone will have seen the artwork for this series, which uh, isn't out as we're recording, but it is damn good. My God, do I love it. Before we go, I just have one last thing to say, Matt. I can oddly hold me lolly up. If you want to follow me, I'm only on Instagram at Matt Coplick. Uh, if you like the podcast, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about it. Uh, once again, algorithm, algorithm, algorithm. Join us next week as we follow a show that came to New York from London. Uh, it won the 1986 Olivier Award for Best Musical. Uh, it was a big old hit and ran for many years over there and over here. I am, of course, talking about me and my girl. Oh, I had you for a second. Oh, you thought it was something else now, did you? No, we're going to be talking about me and my girl. Uh, so get ready for that next week. Uh, I'm trying to think who we should have close this out. We've had Dorothy Loudon. Let's have Miss Megan Hilty close this out today. Oh, there you go. I don't think she, I don't think we've had her. Have we? Have we? Let me just double check. Well, if you hadn't, yes. may I also suggest Andrea Martin in Candide? Because why oh not? Oh my God. Oh no. Or my favorite year even. Accordion lessons. Uh, let me just double check. I don't think I've hit a Hilti. If I were to do Andrea Martin, it would probably be the duck um, joke. The yeah, well, that's what I was just referring to. I know. Um, I she's good on the Candide recording. I just don't like that recording. No, um, I would I would say do the duck joke if you're gonna yeah. do it. Um, we haven't had Megan Hilti, so let's do Miss Megan Hilti. Um, all right. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, see you next week. Bye. Bye. Change imperfection till it's time to drink the wine. I toast to resurrection, but they just keep pooping the line. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.